0: And then, and then the kids on the game show are also talking about like how they you, know, you should you should milk this for all it's worth. Stanley get you know get more endorsements and go on movies. I'm I'm auditioning for a Corey Haim, Alan Thicke. So it's like this weird kind of <laughs> subtext of the Alan Thicke Corey Haim film, which is amazing.
1: <laughs> it's the second. That's the sequel, really. It's just. Uh... We see whatever Alan Thicke Corey Hay movie they ended up producing with whatever characters in the background of this one made it into.
0: Totally. It. Yeah, Magnolia fan fiction. Like, yeah, someone <laughs> needs to, like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah.
1: That's the end credits, you know. they This really started the end credits uh, <laughs> scene trend. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined today by Jesse Pyers, the director and curator of the Lightbox Film Center at the University of Arts in Philly. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: (laughs) Really excited to have you on. Uh, We've got quite the pick today, so I have to ask you the question that I ask at the top of every show. Um, Why did we watch Magnolia. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Why did we? Well, I, I, you know, I feel like I, you know, I saw this film when it first came out. And uh, as an impressionable, uh, you know, 20 something cinephile, it really made an impression on me and, and kind of blew me away. Um, now, almost 25 years later, I felt like time to reevaluate this film. I mean, this, this is uh, mm-hmm. P.T. Anderson's bloated masterpiece. So does it, <laughs> does it stand up uh, over the years? That was my thinking.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great approach to it, because while wa- this was my first time watching the film for this podcast, uh, and I think I'm more in line with some of the younger characters in the movie. And while watching it, I did have the thought of, I wonder if I watch this again in like 20 years, if my perspective on it would change. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about that as we go through.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you said that this is your first time, because I was curious... You know, particularly, yeah, just like what mm-hmm. what uh, kind of younger generation uh, will take away from this film and just how it it works, uh, you know, now in the 21st century. Um, yeah, so I'm curious to hear all your thoughts, but
1: yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll awesome. Well, let's, let's dive right in and get into it then. Uh, we open with these three vignettes of past tragedies and fantastic coincidences uh, narrated by our narrator, who... Uh... <laughs> expresses that these can all just be something that happened and progressively insists more and more that these strange things happen all the time. Uh, all of this is presented in sort of an archival film style uh, and the happenings include such things as a man who is mugged and murdered is murdered by three men whose last names all compose the location he was killed in similar progressively more complicated coincidences. Uh, after going through these vignettes, we pick up with some jauntier music over the front credits and title "Magnolia, Great Flower," and some footage footage all crossfading in front of it.
0: And, then, and I think it's the map. If there's like a map of the valley. You know, it sort of blossoms, so you you're, you're, you kind of get a little hint you're you're in LA and mm-hmm.
1: yeah. <laughs> get a sense for the sunnier location. Uh, maybe that weather will hold through through the rest of the film.
0: <laughs> oh, oh no! Oh. foreshadowing good
1: one the film starts in full by taking us to meet all of our major players uh, in their day-to-day lives Uh, the structure of this film is really interesting because it's weaving together all these individual stories that overlap Uh, in all different kinds of ways, and it's going to be cross-cutting quite a bit between these different stories and little segments, so I've tried to group things together for the sake of the summary on this podcast, Uh, but I'll I'll walk us through each of these instances as they happen in the beginning here. We start in a humble living room, TV-on, where Tom Cruise is with a haircut that is a choice. (laughs) Uh, tells us that life is what we take before continuing to introduce himself in his infomercial as Frank TJ Mackey, author of the Seduce and Destroy System. He's a classic pickup artist uh who promises to have any blonde waiting to wet your dock with the simple purchase of these audio tapes or books.
0: <laughs> oh my God. It's it's such a um well I think I, you know every role, every person in this film clearly is is, you know, given the opportunity to like just chew up the scenery, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's so many uh, monologues, but, you know, but I feel like Tom Cruise especially, regardless of his personal life and what (laughs) you think of him, like this role is really uh, a super special role for him. I mean, it's it's totally bizarre and kind of amazing. Mm -hmm.
1: He gets to be off-putting in a very controlled way and a very (laughs) intentional way (laughs) compared to some of his other performances. Uh, You get a little hint of it here, but we'll see some of his speeches later on to his audience, and you get a a much better sense of it then. This infomercial is also playing at a bar where uh, Claudia, played by Melora Walters, is hanging out uh, when she's approached by a man, and they go back to his or hers, do a little cocaine, have a little sex, and the commercial instead (laughs) talks about a new program talking about Jimmy Gator, who is an American legend and TV icon celebrating his 12,000th hour of broadcast uh, and also the father of the woman having sex while the program expounds on his family man status. <laughs> Classic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very efficient method of introducing us to everyone pretty quickly. I'll get yeah, that yeah. to well, this and, opening.
0: and also there's the, I guess it's the Amy Mann music, right? That's sort of mm-hmm. like, you kind of rolls us along and yeah, you you, um... Yeah, I mean, you—you already know you're in for this sort of ensemble cast, and everyone's kind of, um, yeah, ro- like coming out and and uh, you know, getting right into the 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 dirt and the drama.
1: Yeah, <laughs> wasting no time showing the different complications of their lives. Uh, The TV program switches once again to a quiz show where a young boy, Donnie Smith, is nailing every single answer. Uh, It's playing in the living room of another young boy, Stanley, whose dad is rushing him out the door to school with his multiple backpacks. (laughs) Uh, And we fast forward to see quiz kid Donnie Smith in the present day, now grown up, uh, getting fitted for his adult braces, which he seems rather excited about. (laughs) (laughs) He heads over to work, driving right over the bumper of a parking lot and straight into the window of a 7-Eleven. Uh, seems that Donnie is having a rough day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just watched Logan Lucky for this podcast, which also has a character driving straight into a 7-Eleven. So this really felt like a theme for the week for me personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Who, who knew? I mean, maybe, maybe this is pulled from the headlines. One of those it's strange really... coincidences yeah, yeah. that happened. Yeah, very, right. There you go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, We then meet Earl, who is an old and bedridden man, uh, and his nurse, Phil, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, Earl is grumpy and sick and miserable, and Phil is just doing what he can to help him. We also meet in this moment uh, Linda, his Earl's second wife, who is off to procure pills for Earl, uh, morphine and other things to help him. We then go to Jim, uh, who is eating his breakfast alone, the cop played by John C. Riley, as he records his description of himself, an LAPD officer who likes his job and likes the movies and is looking to meet someone special. Uh, he also seems to be a, a man of some faith. Uh, he talks about God and his beliefs a lot in in his different recordings he'll have of himself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's, he's the, uh, the, the, the rare, uh, very, you know, good moral cop <laughs> in mm-hmm. these days.
1: <laughs> yeah, he expresses that he just wants to help people and, and do good, and we don't see... Too much conflict with that throughout this. He is kind of like the paragonist character, I think, of our circle of messed up people.
0: <laughs> right. He's yeah, he's kind of almost like an unofficial narrator. I mean he mm-hmm. you, he he has uh well, these great kind of rambling uh you know, soliloquies in his in his vehicle where he's sort of just throwing out these platitudes, but you know, but but in a way <laughs> it it's sort of it is kind of woven into the film really nicely.
1: Mm-hmm. We then get the title of a a weather report, partly cloudy, 82% chance of rain. And these will kind of serve as little structural touch points throughout the film. Anytime we enter sort of a different uh, level of intensity of these different intercutting scenes, we tend to get a new weather report right before it. Jim enters a woman's house about a call. Uh, He's heard a disturbance and she is immediately furious at him and as he tries to get her to calm down she continues to give him sass about answering his questions, eventually providing her name, Marcy and explaining that she lives alone Uh, but he's like, I gotta look around the room. The neighbors made a complaint about a scream and a loud crash and while she tries to continue to deny it, there's another thud from the back bedroom. He handcuffs her to the sofa as she continues to try and stop him and heads into the back bedroom, uh, eventually opening the closet to find a body lying on the ground which Marcy very comically says isn't hers
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a a great comedic moment too
1: (laughs) (laughs) that whole kind of like opening back and forth between the two of them has a lot of really uh fun I wouldn't say this movie is funny but there is a certain style to the dialogue that P.T. Anderson's written here that is humorous and it is these moments but some of these side characters in particular
0: yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious, like early on, that the the there's some gravity to the film and the characters, mm-hmm. and you know, like I, I feel like in, in rewatching it, I like felt uncomfortable almost immediately, like oh my god, you know, like I this is there's this is an, an intensity level like already, you know, like we haven't even really established <laughs> much of a story, but like things are running amok, you know, and I'm not I'm not <laughs> feeling comfortable here.
1: Yeah, it, it's. It's definitely that slight discomfort, but then there's, I feel like these moments of humor do do a good job of sort of grounding the movie in a a more relatable sense. Like now, okay, I see these characters are also just people and I can kind of relate to them a little bit more than if their lives were just constant misery and tragedy with no, you know, glimmer of amusement anywhere. Totally, yeah. Yeah. We then go to Linda, who is struggling with Earl's impending death. She just doesn't know what to do. She's distraught, and the uh, lawyer or doctor that she's talking to tries to reassure her that all she can do is make this experience as painless as possible for him, and he encourages her to call the hospice as they'll take care of everything. He also makes the important recommendation that she switch him to liquid morphine, but says that once he receives it, they'll really lose all signs of the recognizable Earl, so that's really his... His end, his death, in that sense. Earl, meanwhile, uh, doesn't want to just sit there and do nothing, and tells Phil that he has a son. He doesn't know where he is. They're estranged, and he he wants to get in contact with this son after all of this time.
0: I know, yeah, and I love that scene too. There's like a couple moments in the film where it, it's very kind of self-referential, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think it's that point when Earl. Sort of says something like, "This is so stupid." Like a, a dying man, you know. Like, like it's it's this great kind of almost kind of breaking of the fourth wall. Like, like mm-hmm. look at this ridiculous scene, you know. And, and there's a couple more moments in the film like that. Particularly the, um, I think it's Phil Parma, the Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, when he's like, "This is right. the scene in the movie," you know. Like that. That, yeah. that I still get <laughs> choked up when I think of that scene. It's like, wow, that's that's intense.
1: Yeah, he he calls it out directly. Um, also, Earl has so so many talks. <laughs> Every time we're back at Earl's. House, there's just six or seven dogs running around barking in the <laughs> background. That's the constant kind of barrage of the sound yeah. in there. Yeah. Thus spoke Zarathustra, I'm going to mispronounce this, picks up the 2001 of Space Odyssey music. <laughs> uh, as we go wide and cut to black, a figure lightly illuminated begins to raise his arms for a cheering crowd. It's Tom Cruise again. It's Jack Mackey. Uh, he's in the midst of his Seduce and Destroy seminar performance and he insists that the audience respect the cock as the crowd of cheering men listen and he goes on his usual seduction coach spiel. A reporter, Guinevere, arrives at the hotel and is shuffled uh, into the audience by his assistants and uh, Frank's Captain Muffy and Doc. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And he continues his spiel about uh, calendars and how they can use them to keep track of their various seduction goals. And this is your first kind of hint at the... uh, Tom Cruise performance we're going to get throughout this movie, especially on these onstage segments of just this kind of like over the top controlled chaos almost.
0: Yeah. And and it's weird, too. I mean, I think that whole character and those scenes are particularly interesting to me now because of this kind of moment, cultural moment that we're in of Mm -hmm. the like, you know, men's rights group and like the Joe Rogans and Jordan Peterson, you know, like there's like this culture that's really sprung up online that feeds into that like it's it's you know I think at the time when I first saw it it was very much a caricature and like it just didn't um I mean it was funny and 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 Mm -hmm. and well written but now it just has a darker tone like oh yeah like we are kind of a little more you know close to this like weird toxic masculine culture now
1: Yeah, I think it definitely changed how I approached this character going into it, because I was primed for sort of that exploration of the the toxic masculine culture. And instead, he is more of a character, especially with the um, interview that he'll do with this reporter, Guinevere. I kept it waiting for the moment where he would hit on her and it would either work or it wouldn't. And that would be the central point of conflict. But that's not really what the conflict of their interview ends up being. Uh, And I, I do think that it's informed a lot by Kind of the current cultural context, as opposed to this film came out in nineteen ninety nine, the time in which it was based, where this could just kind of live as a character.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, I would just say too, more broadly, in rewatching this, you know, the, the the emphasis is clearly on the the male characters, and I almost feel like mm-hmm. it is a, a, an exploration of of toxic masculinity. I mean, you know, I don't even yeah. know if that term was really bandied about at, at the time, maybe just just forming. But you know, when you look at Earl who's kind of the central figure Earl Partridge um you know he has this this these this moment of regretting all of his like you know terrible things he's done with his family Jimmy Gator has a similar moment there's the Tom Cruise character you know it, 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 maybe it's maybe it's not just toxic masculinity but sort of the fragility like male fragility right just mm-hmm. like all the male characters are like damaged and broken that's not to say that like the The female characters don't have similar (laughs) issues, but I feel like the 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 male characters are foregrounded and their flaws are really foregrounded.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a good point, because we will see going through just how much emphasis is put on their male characters, particular flaws, and especially the effects that that has on the other characters and their associated in their lives. A lot of the female characters in this movie are kind of directly tied to a male character who was in some way either hurt or, in the rare case of John C. Riley's <laughs> policemen, it's improved their lives. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because I, I, I had to, um, when I was rewatching, I have a 10 year old son, so, you know, he he was around the house when I was watching it and, oh, I'm going to watch a movie. <laughs> so, you know, he, but he, he, he was probably not even interested in watching it anyway. But I, you anyway, know, afterwards he was like, oh, I heard you watching this film where people were shouting, you know, what, what was it about? So I was trying to <laughs> explain what the film is about and, and and i it's really hard to like you know in a very concise way like summarize mm-hmm. what the film is about so so i think in a way that was also my reaching this point of like yeah it's i think it's about masculinity you know that's a a good at least starting point to kind of frame it you know and he, yeah, he, he's I... cool he, he, you know for a 10 year old he, he he's he's tuned into the the cultural milieu so he, he yeah. knows <laughs> not that i'm gonna watch, let him watch magnolia not anytime soon but.
1: Uh, it's it, that's a time-honored ten-year-old tradition of watching something maybe you shouldn't have with your right. <laughs> with your dad.
0: Oh yes, yes.
1: I have my dad on the show every Father's Day, and it's just a continuation of that long-standing tradition.
0: <laughs> i i yes, there, there. I have a whole, yeah, many stories of films, you know, films <laughs> seen on like a Saturday afternoon TV, you know, like like left, you know, to HBO or something, and mm-hmm. just like I'm hanging around the house and like what the, but yeah. <laughs> Some incredibly important cinema memories for me.
1: Yeah, they're they're foundational. They're in there, Uh, and I also know the struggle of trying to concisely summarize the film *Magnolia*.
0: Now, (laughs) right.
1: But we're we're doing our best here. Yes, yes, Um, good job.
0: Sorry, keep going.
1: no, no. (laughs) No worries. In the dark, someone dials a phone. It's Phil, the nurse, and he is beginning the search for Frank Mackey. He tries one of the phone numbers he found, but it is the wrong number and he is just striking out with everything available in the house. Guinevere is getting ready to do her interview as Mackey continues to coach one young man in the audience before going on to a spiel about how uh, women won't be there for you when things go wrong and he then instructs them to turn to page 18 for the lesson on Form a Tragedy. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a method that involves calling your friend to set a date and then cutting to another location in the movie. <laughs> there's a few moments. I think there's two specifically where we'll cut to a different lesson from his book. And it almost serves as like a makeshift title for the immediate scene that follows. Totally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a really good point. I, I didn't even catch that, but yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah. Cause we go to form a tragedy and the next scene is uh, Jimmy knocking on the door of his daughter, Claudia and her man of the day uh who who lets him in and uh he tries to go to claudia who was asleep she wakes up and is just furious that he's there screaming at him to get out he tries to talk to her uh, but she gets increasingly upset and he lays on her that he is dying of cancer uh, the tragedy that has formed in this case and yells him right out of the house Donnie rushes into the store where he works and goes to clock in when he's called into his boss's office and is promptly fired for his poor performance. He begs to keep his job. He needs the money for the braces he's trying to pay for. Uh, but this defense does not work in his favor and he's asked to turn in his keys.
0: Yeah. Donnie, the character of Donnie is so uh, remarkable in that like he's the, you know, he was like the, one of the smartest kids on this you know, mm-hmm. TV show and, um, and has sort of fallen so far and, and is really just like this sad sack kind of idiot you know as we've seen as he's dri- driven his car into a plate glass window and just everything <laughs> nothing you know works for him and uh right. yeah I, I love that like the 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 sort of sad sack really just trying to redeem himself in any way possible <laughs>
1: He's got uh, just like a few things in his life that really keep him going that we'll see in in just a little bit. And everything (laughs) he does is kind of to that end. And it is is—it's just this desperate attempt to to hold on to anything he can. The forensics team and detectives are going through the case of the guy in the closet, a.k.a. Porter Parker, uh, with Jim in the background nodding along and trying to interject at one point, but just getting shushed. He's apparently Marcy's husband, who just shows up to yell. There's also a son who's now missing uh, and jim leaves the scene of this investigating crime and as he exits he's uh talking to a young boy who tries to be just helpful enough to get paid he's like don't you want to know who did it yada 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 trying to almost uh get hired by the police precinct at one point point. and he insists that he could help jim solve the case he knows who did it though jim seems skeptical uh and the kid says well i'm a rapper so listen to my rap and this will tell you you know what you need to know to solve the case uh and he does his whole rap and when it finishes up and jim gets in the car the kid is disappointed because he's like i told you who did it yeah. uh but jim seems to have not picked up on this fact
0: yeah i, I feel like in any movie that is this kind of sprawling and and mm-hmm. uh kind of you know so vast there, there's always going to be sort of loose threads and i feel like that piece was to me a bit of a loose thread like yeah you know there's like this whole crime and you know and then it it never really resolved i mean it, it is referenced at several other points but it, mm-hmm. it never really feels like it's i mean and i guess maybe in a way that's tracks for the film right like there's mm-hmm. just these threads and they all kind of intersect at various points and then they go their separate ways
1: Yeah, I think this film does a really good job of, for the most part, keeping all its interweaving stories really tight. And this does kind of feel like the one hanging thread, like you said. Uh, It almost feels like there was a character, maybe like the son, who was more prominent in some of the rest of the film that got cut at some point. This is a three-hour long movie. I wouldn't be super surprised if there was a storyline or two that may have been trimmed up. Uh, We will see the young boy become somewhat recurring. um, But yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that this is the one point where I was like, oh... Something's missing that we haven't gone back to this whole man-in-a-closet situation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: A young boy, Stanley, is at the library studying a whole spread of books all over the table waiting for his dad to pick him up and then promptly getting hurried into the car to shuffle off to the game show he competes on. Um, And we get our second weather report title, uh, light showers, 99% humidity, winds southeast 12 miles per hour a bit more uh ominous of, of a forecast than the last one
0: yeah uh, well, I, I was gonna say too the there's like this sort of unexplained phenomenon right that that mm-hmm. is the um you know it opens the film these these you know crazy things that we never thought would happen and i feel like even the fact that it's an it's a film based in los angeles most of the film takes place in the rain which mm-hmm. is in itself a kind of Unusual phenomenon for, for sunny <laughs> Southern California, Right. Um, so already and you know and that this is this is the kind of second chapter as indicated by those titles, so you know, like once the rain happens, things are things are getting darker. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, the unusual happenstances are adding up at this point.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Stanley and his dad rush into the quiz show through the rain where Stanley is herded off to the dressing room as his dad breaks off to wait with the other parents in the green room. The other two kids who compete on the show along with him where they pit three adults against three kids in a quiz show and it's... um how smart are kids, or something along those lines. Right, yeah, yeah. Stanley seems interested in the weather studio that they have upstairs, and uh, his handler, Cynthia, offers to arrange a tour later on, which I thought was very sweet. This is just a very curious young boy. He wants to know everything about the world around him. He just always asks about what's nearby, uh, and that's often considered to be the source of how intelligent he is. But I think it also shows off that he's very observant, which is going to kind of come into play a bit later in his story.
0: Right, and and, and I should also point out, too, in, in, in our quest to uncover all of the sort of toxic males, you know, his, mm-hmm. his dad is, is incredibly problematic yeah. and, and uh, is, it's obvious that he's his dad is kind of pushing him to do this. And it's almost like a kind mm-hmm. of money-making scheme. I do, I do love, and I don't know if you caught this, there, there are, um, his dad was going off to a audition for, you know, when he drops him off at school is like, I'm going to be late. I have an audition. And he, he kind of under his breath and mumbles that it's for an Alan Thicke, Corey Haim uh, picture. Hmm. And then, and then the kids on the, Game show are also talking about like how that you, know, you should you should milk this for all it's worth. Stanley get you know get more endorsements and go on movies. I'm I'm auditioning for a Corey Haim, Alan Thicke. So it's like this weird kind of <laughs> subtext of the Alan Thicke Corey Haim film, which is amazing.
1: <laughs> it's the second. That's the sequel, really. It's just uh, we see whatever Alan Thicke Corey Haim movie they ended up producing with whatever characters in the background of this one made it into.
0: Totally. It. Yeah, Magnolia fan fiction. Like, yeah, someone needs to like. <laughs> yeah that'd be amazing
1: yeah. that's the end credits you know they this really started the end credits uh, <laughs> scene trend
0: <laughs> totally
1: <laughs> Jimmy uh, has his mail delivered by his assistant Mary and he calls his wife recounting his last visit to their daughter earlier in this film where he's like oh there was some other older man there and she was doing drugs and it's just a whole mess Jim, meanwhile, is on patrol, arriving at said daughter's apartment and banging on the door, and Claudia has to rush around to hide her cocaine and try not to get him to enter until she's hidden all of the illegal substances in her apartment. Meanwhile, Linda is getting a prescription uh, from her doctor, uh, clearly quite worked up at this point about what she's doing. She's getting the prescription for a bunch of drugs, including the liquid morphine, um, and she's also warned not to mix any of them
0: yes it raises a suspicion of the pharmacy staff and and like mm-hmm. there's like there's sort of wonderful furtive glances and then the guy kind of like hey you know yeah like don't don't party too hard with this stuff and then yeah <laughs> and she just like i mean that as i said there are like these moments of just explosive monologues mm-hmm. or just outbursts from the characters and that that is Kind of like the quintessential one that, you know, I think people, a lot of people refer to this film of that that, uh, Julianne Moore outburst is pretty classic.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's stupendous when you let Julianne Moore cut loose. (laughs) Yeah. Phil, meanwhile, is flipping channels, landing on the quiz show What Do Kids Know, and placing an order for peanut butter, cigarettes, bread, uh, Playboy, Penthouse, and Hustler magazines and some candlelights in an attempt to kind of, like, hide the three magazines, and the woman on the other side of the phone is like, do you still want the peanut butter, cigarette spread, <laughs> etc.
0: It's perfect, too, because his character is this kind of, like, very sweet, innocent, like, mm-hmm. and so it, 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 it kind of lays the seed for, like, oh, he's actually secretly naughty. and then, But then it sort of has this wonderful twist, you because know, mm-hmm.
1: he's searching yes. for Frank. Yeah, he's using the ads in the magazine to scan through and find the number for uh, Frank's uh, seduce and destroy order line to try and work his way up to Frank. Speaking of Frank, at his show, he's dismissed all of the guys in the audience for lunch and is directed over to Guinevere to begin the interview. Um, She tries to get him to just come to the setup, no problem. But he warns her it's not very safe for her here. And this is where I was still sort of in the mind of like, oh, this is going to be a weird him hitting on her situation. It's either going to work or it's not. Uh, But we see that he's very cocky and in control at this point. (laughs) He
0: strips down to his underwear, (laughs) just like doing these weird, like exercise I and mean, like squatting
1: and,
0: and may, maybe a prosthetic i got i'm like i don't know if it's maybe he's tom Hanks or tom, tom cruise is really hung but that was like that there's some your tidy whities are very prominent here. <laughs> like i don't know what's going on
1: yeah he's uh changing from a show outfit to i guess interview attire as he goes um but he's Describing how quickly he can pick up a woman to Guinevere, who seems a little bit incredulous at this point. Uh, And he's like, I live by these rules as much as I preach them. And uh, they start rolling on the interview so that he can say more stuff about how cocky and in control he is. Uh, Although Gwen is the one who does sort of take control to get the interview started and we get to see the first inklings of this little back and forth power dynamic there's going to be throughout these interview segments. Donnie hypes himself up as he walks into a bar, grabbing the corner booth and ordering a Diet Coke, and uh, staring at the bartender, who has adult braces and is himself very attractive, Uh, and it seems that Donnie is somewhat obsessed with this bartender. There's also another patron at the end of the bar, an older man, who uh, chats with the bartender a bit and he overhears the bartender is going to get out of here in a few days when his Harley is fixed.
0: (laughs) Right, that's classic.
1: (laughs) Back at her apartment, Claudia finally lets Jim in. Uh, Jim's like, hey, I got a complaint that your music was too loud from your neighbors. I just got to, you know, take a look around. Um, I heard there was some screaming and yelling as well. And she kind of explains that it's not a boyfriend. Uh, that Everything's fine and tries to get him to leave. But he's like, I just got to take a look around. Uh, and also make some little small talk about don't play your music too loud. You'll damage your ears and like hurt your <laughs> neighbor's ears as well. Showing just how... How good of a man Jim is, you know. He's he's looking out for everyone, uh, even yeah, though he got yeah. called a, in he's on a complaint. A righteous
0: dude. <laughs> even even though I, I you know I know that obviously Amy Mann is you know these are all of her songs and spread right. throughout the film, but uh, I'm like, really, you're going to be blasting Amy? Mann. <laughs> that's, that's the the like head here. banging. But yeah, why not?
1: I guess. <laughs> yeah Yeah. At the quiz show, the kids are walking and talking about how they haven't been in school much, including Stanley. And the other two are, as you mentioned, much more entrenched in this show business world. Stanley seems to be more interested in actually learning things. Um, They make it to the stage as their adult competitors also stream in. And uh, Jimmy, the host of the show, uh, gets up and takes a shot before heading to the soundstage, completely hammered to do the same thing he's done for 30 years.
0: I would, I would suspect he's not the only uh, game no. show host who's, who's <laughs> sloshed uh, when they've hosted a show.
1: I guess if you do the same thing every night for 30 years, you get yeah. pretty good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, back at the bar, Donnie sidles up to the other older patron talking to the bartender uh, named Brad and asks if he has any money in his pocket and then asks if he has any love and insists that Donnie had. You know, he's got love. He's got so, so much love to give, uh, and he's going to get progressively sloppier over the course of his bar scenes and more and more distraught about his luck in love and his lot in life. Linda, meanwhile, goes to get a prescription filled. This is when we see the pharmacist start to kind of act surprised about just how much she's getting and what it is, and they have their little chat with the boss off in the corner uh, to call in and check on all these different drugs. Back on the soundstage, Stanley has to go to the bathroom while his dad is explaining his parenting strategy to all of the others in the room. About, uh, I think he even says like you got to abuse them or you got to neglect them, uh, really highlighting just how poor of a dad he is. Yeah. But the show begins: three kids versus three adults. The kids are in their eighth week as champions. They're looking to break the record. Uh, and Jimmy enters, introduces the show, and we flip through all of our other characters and kind of check in on everybody real quick before we move on in the in the film. Uh, Including Marcy, who is back for a brief little moment, uh, is being processed and questioned about her son. And this is a little bit of why I think maybe the son was a character who was cut, because they name him as Jerome Samuel Hall, who might be called Worm. And that just felt like too important of a detail to have a full name and a nickname and not have had potentially been in a different draft of the script or even had scenes that were shot
0: yeah yeah and I feel like yeah they have, they make this whole moment of the like, copy, like have you, who's the worm Who, tell us about the worm you know like it's like mm-hmm. they keep dropping and it's like okay yeah like yeah. what what's up with this maybe, maybe this is something mm-hmm. but yeah
1: no but this is kind of the last we'll really hear of the worm so much right Right. <laughs> um, worms always come out in the rain I think that hey. could have tied back to the kids rap a little bit because he did talk about the rain revealing all we know this movie loves its rain but again all it, it
0: really... <laughs> love it
1: Phil's deliveries arrive, and he finds the number for Seduce and Destroy inside, starts to place his call. Uh, Stanley, meanwhile, is dominating the quiz show, answering before most questions are even finished. This kid knows his stuff, and he is clearly carrying the kid's team.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, the other two are just phoning it in.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Phil gets on the line with Seduce and Destroy and tries to explain his situation with uh, Mackie's dad to the... Very helpful customer service rep who is just like I'll I'll see what I can do. And they talk a little bit about uh, the customer service rep's mom also had cancer, which is what Mackie's dad Earl is dying of. And they have this little like human connection, heart to heart moment. It's it's pretty endearing.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. This. Yeah. This is this is the scene where you know Philip Seymour Hoffman is like you know the, the, I know I think they have those scenes in the movie where the guy right. calls to find you know because I, I think that really happens. Like it's a really Mm-hmm. Kind of brilliant really touching moment, yeah,
1: yeah, and it's like you mentioned earlier kind of the moment of breaking the fourth wall and calling out that we are in a movie and this is the scene that we're watching. Right. Um, but I, I think it works. I think sometimes breaking the fourth wall can take you, I mean, it does, it takes you out of the movie, it, that's sort of the intent of it, but it can take you so out of it that you can't get back in. And I feel like here instead, it's reminding us that we are watching a story that's going to affect you emotionally and that you should be connecting with these characters as opposed to just being like, oh, wait, this is not real. This isn't something I have to worry about. Yeah, right. Back at the interview, Gwen and Mackie go on and on. He's talking about his family. Uh, and as he does, Gwen asks how he his mother feels about Seduce and Destroy. Uh, and he's like, oh, you know, or she is on board, but my father passed away, which we know to not be true as his father is currently in the process of passing away. <laughs> we then see the scene at the pharmacy where linda julianne moore gets to go off on the two pharmacists after they you know give her a little bit too much uh questioning and trouble in the process of trying to get these uh prescriptions filled And she's like oh my gosh you know i've just I'm going through it i just came in here to do this thing and you guys are questioning me and i just i can't take it anymore um Sorry, clearly, yes, I, I, I jumped
0: yeah. the gun on that on revealing that but yes <laughs> but yeah, there, there it is that's the yeah the, the,
1: one of the, the many topic. outstanding like monologues of this uh a movie but particularly a memorable one and it gives right. you a good insight into like linda is not really uh in a sound mind at the moment
0: right i think she says like yeah, i have death all around me <laughs>
1: yeah. like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Phil continues to try and explain why he needs Mackie's number to get through to him. It's he's making a little bit of progress. Every time you go back to Phil, he's like one more person up the chain, or he's just about right. to get connected with the assistant. And he's he's making progress. There's he's this hope for Phil yet. Um.
0: <laughs> he's a good guy. He's he's. Yeah. I mean, I think he's he's the real like unsung hero of the. You know, like it, yeah. because, Like like Jim is obviously like trying to pass himself off as like the really good good guy, mm-hmm. but like Phil Parma is just like.
1: I'm just here to help you know (laughs) Phil is doing everything like out of the goodness of his heart at one point uh, another nurse will come to relieve him and he's like actually I'm just going to see this through to the end which is not not something he has to do you know he's just doing a job right good guy good guy good guy Phil (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mackey's interview continues and uh, he's caught in his first little lie where he admits that he was never officially enrolled at the uh, colleges he said he went to. He got his education through a few generous professors and then he tries to spin it as his rags to riches story, but we kind of get the beginning of an idea that maybe, you know, everything he says is not, uh, and everything about how he presents himself is not necessarily true to how he feels. In the end of round one of the game show, the kids are well in the lead when the secret bonus musical question comes up and Jimmy uh, asks them to sing some lines of opera in their language of the opera. And Stanley quickly buzzes in and sings a line from Carmen in French. Uh, Unfortunately, I do not know my opera or my French well enough to (laughs) translate that, but it's a pretty um, famous piece of music. I'm sure most people watching the film would be like, oh, I at least recognize the tune. If not the meaning or the words.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a, something about love being refused, mm-hmm. but yeah,
1: yeah. Opera will continue to play as Jim uh, walks around Claudia's and he sort of uh, notices that there's coffee there and then she offers him coffee and it's felt very like, oh, well, since you've pointed it out, now I must be hospitable and ask and like, I just want you to get out of my house. I have all these, I have all this cocaine here I need to hide. <laughs> but he takes her up on it and he says, you know, I'm not going to write you up good guy cop uh he's like i'm just gonna give you a little bit of a, a warning and you know don't disturb your neighbors and take care of your ears turn down the amy man next time you're listening and <laughs> jamming out and he has a more coffee asking about the gentleman at the door earlier worried that she may be in a domestic abuse situation but she insists everything is fine uh and he moves on to sort of hitting on her a little bit in his very awkward kind of way
0: yeah and i think we uh, even earlier like in the film that you you also hear like a dating I guess he's doing like a dating service so you hear Mm -hmm. his little profile like yeah I'm I'm, I'm in law law enforcement so it's yeah you've already established like he's he's looking for love and (laughs) you know yeah
1: yeah Jimmy, meanwhile, is struggling with the show during the break. He's a little too drunk and a little too sick, and he very well might throw up for the first time since he was 20. And Stanley, also struggling uh, with his own body during this, really has to go to the bathroom. But there's just no time before they cut back from commercial break, claims every adult in the room. Earl remains distressed as Phil continues his noble quest to (laughs) call in to... Get a, get a hold of Mackie in any way possible uh, so he's on the phone in one hand and he's grabbing the morphine pills in the other and just spills them everywhere um, trying to shoo all the dogs away before they can lick any of them up but one of the dogs does lick up a few of the pills <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> foreshadowing again
1: <laughs> foreshadowing <laughs> uh, but finally Phil is put in touch with Janet, Mackie's assistant so he's making it, he's, he's so close You know, we still have so much hope that he's gonna pull through on this quest
0: I really love Janet too. She's another yeah. kind of unsung hero. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't even think we see her at all during the film. She's just a voice on the end of the phone. But she really is. She's got a handle on her job. She's <laughs> she knows her situation. She's like, I right. know how to handle Jack.
0: <laughs> well, there's. I. It's like one of the other assistants. You know, that, like is on the phone and when mm-hmm. he's like walking to the hallway. He's like, I'm on. I'm in the elevator, Janet. I'm on the. I mean, I'm in the hallway. You know, and, and she's like, What's the story, Janet? And he's like, Fuck you. You know, like, like she. Like Janet is like the, like of all these alpha male. Like you know whatever seduce and destroy it's right. like she clearly is like you guys are losers like <laughs> I, I run the show
1: yeah to kind of get the impression that she's the one running everything behind the scenes like this organization falls apart without janet you know no totally. one would be able yeah. to keep a handle on mackie
0: <laughs> yes big fan of janet
1: yeah Jimmy tells Mary, his uh, assistant or office manager, that he has about two months to live and then walks back out on stage to show must go on. Meanwhile, at the bar, Donnie is still kind of talking, getting ramblier and ramblier with this progressively more irritated man next to him at the bar and uh, continuing to ignore him, for the most part, bartender listening in, as well as a few other patrons who are there. He's like, don't you know who I am? I'm Quiz Kid Donnie Smith. Uh, and though the old band doesn't recognize him, two other patrons do. And they're like, weren't you struck by lightning at one point?
0: <laughs> yeah, you very, very like agitatedly uh, describes being struck by lightning, <laughs> you know, you, you, that that's a very good clue of just, like, yeah. Or, and I guess it also comes up earlier in the, when he's mm-hmm. being fired from his job. He's like, you know, you shouldn't get braces, Donnie. Like, you maybe were struck by lightning <laughs> that one time, you know. Yeah. Like, that's such a classic line. Like, you, you gotta be careful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gives you the sense that, like, he's, he's really been rattled since his... Not only did he have this sort of unusual upbringing that might have affected him in some way, but also in his life, he's just had a lot of coincidental misfortune in the form of a lightning super, strike and Super act of God. unlucky yeah. yeah
0: the unluckiest but former smartest kid
1: mhm he also at this point admits that part of the reasons he's in this financial straits is his parents took all the money that he earned on the game shows so he doesn't have that sort of residual Uh, that he he should have. Back in the interview, Guinevere is asking Jack about his past, and he's growing a bit more and more cagey and reluctant as she pushes. He tries to kind of talk around it, but Guinevere continues asking if he remembers Miss Sims, a neighbor who raised him after his mother died. She explains that when she talked to Miss Sims, she told him that his mother had passed away in 1980, catching him in the lie that it's not his father who is dead, but His mother and it was much farther back he immediately loses the sort of jovial facade he's had on this whole time as she continues to press and ask why he would lie about his actual family history Uh, and the power dynamic of this interview has shifted entirely from his kind of cocky devil may care game show host almost attitude that he has uh when he's doing his performances to the real jack Mackey and the things that he is constantly thinking about and dwelling on yeah
0: that's the great use of close-ups throughout this film but definitely like in that face-to-face with the reporter like just like the i mean and also you know obviously the the music is sort of building all this tension but Mm -hmm. yeah those that that scene of just like pure like (laughs) oh my god this is the most uncomfortable experience (laughs) i've ever had in a movie like this is what's going to happen you know like
1: yeah putting us right up in their faces for this whole interview is just so powerful um yeah To have Tom Cruise glaring at you that close up, is I was watching this on a much smaller screen than it would be in the theater, but I imagine if he blew this up to some size, it would be just as intimidating.
0: Totally.
1: The adults are starting to win at the game show as Stanley has begun to look more and more distraught. It seems that he's now a little bit off his game and without uh, without their anchor holding them down, the kids don't really have a lot to stand on here. Linda, meanwhile, is at her lawyer Alan's office asking him if he can change Earl's will. Uh, she explains and uh, explains is a strong word she's sort of rambling and extremely distraught still uh, half yelling half like crying um, but she's married him for his money she never used to love him but now that he's dying she finds that she does love him and she doesn't want that money from the will anymore he suggests that she could just renounce the will when it's when it's read and but she doesn't want the money to go to frank instead so she just sort of Storms out after Alan gets a little short with her, and in, in her frustration, uh, he does offer to call her a car, which is nice of him, but she does not take him <laughs> up on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, clear, clearly, clearly, yeah, I think he says something like, "You know, what, what are you are you on something?" Or you know, mm-hmm. so he he knows. Yeah, she's been yeah. dabbling in the pharmaceuticals. <laughs>
1: stanley continues to struggle at the game show he just can't hold it in anymore and he pees himself while sitting on stage trying to hide it uh, and as he sort of shuffles to try and hide it he hits the buzzer by mistake and has to admit that he doesn't know the answer to one of the questions immediately following this jimmy struggles to get through explaining what the next uh clue they're going to be providing is a they have a harmonica trio who are playing all of their songs <laughs> which is A choice of musical instrument trio only possibly made by a game show. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, in trying to explain it, gives away the answer to the question and collapses on stage, so they gotta cut to commercial. Claudia does some cocaine and then returns to Jim and they make some more small talk as the game show continues and the crew rushes to help Jimmy. Stanley's dad storms on set as everyone is asking what's wrong and checking on Jimmy who's trying to brush them off and everyone is now also checking on Stanley who's like it's not no big deal I just want to continue trying to brush them off as well and he's kind of got this old man involved in the show and this young man involved in the show both struggling with very similar issues just in different levels of severity.
0: Right, like, yeah, both just sort of, like, shooing people away, like, get out of here, like, I just, Mm -hmm. like, just, like, leave me alone.
1: Yeah, and both of them do end up deciding to stay in the game or stay hosting the show. Really living up to the show must go on, the phrase. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Claudia, meanwhile, is uh, swaying and a little bit nervous as she talks to Jim when he gets a call over his radio. He's got to go off on police business. They part cordially, and she immediately locks the door. Hearing the kind of click of the lock, he pauses, and after a moment, returns to her door to ask her on a date. She agrees, and they make plans to go out that night at ten p.m.
0: I have to say that the Claudia character—I don't know that actress's much of her work, but mm-hmm. um, her, like her, the whole film, she, she has this like pained expression and this sort of yeah. like forced dialogue, and it's it's like. I don't know if that was intentional, it, it was, but it's like really hard to watch. Like she's like clearly like, like every line is delivered with like a, like, oh
1: my God, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> like, yeah. Very odd. It made it kind of hard to tell what she was thinking at any point because- Totally, yeah. It, you know, the situation with Jim is she's being hit on by a cop who's in her apartment that she can't just like tell to leave because what if he, you know, decides to look around more or something. Uh, and so at first when I was, Watching this, and like, oh, this is a this is a bad situation for Claudia. She's high and struggling <laughs> and panicking. But then when they go to the date later on, she's still kind of in that same performance. And so I was never really sure exactly how to interpret how Claudia was feeling about Jim and about like any other situation based on like you were saying the kind of like almost twitchy, nervous delivery she was always doing.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it kind of works. Like I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Like it, yeah, it, you know, but it's it is yeah. It's hard to like you know like she, like you said when she accepts this date, you know, It's she's sort of like, you want to go on a date with me? Great. You know, like, uh, you're, you're like, I don't know how she, I don't, I don't think she's happy here, but I, evidently right. she is. So yeah, it's really yeah. hard to, to gauge.
1: It's a little hard to parse. Yeah. 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 Back in the interview, Frank is no longer making jokes. He is all serious now uh, as Guinevere talks about how he had to take care of his mother during her illness after his father left them. And she tries to prod Frank to get him to talk more about his mother and uh, and this is when Doc, the other assistant, gets the call from Janet, who's like, get, get Frank on the phone, <laughs> directing <laughs> him around. But Frank is in his interview uh, falling silent instead, refusing to, to give Gwen anything. The game show resumes, this time one contestant from each team has to get up and stand in the center for a mini minigame. Uh, and every time this has happened in the past, Stanley has been the representative from the kids team, but he doesn't want to get up, he doesn't want to go. Uh, as much as the others try to insist and Stanley is called up to center stage, he just refuses to get up and go over and join Jimmy in the middle of the stage. Johnny, meanwhile, is still ranting at the old man at the bar about how he's sick and he's in love and he has so much love to give. He just has all this love. Uh, And then he admits to Brad, the bartender, that he is in love with him. And he's like, I would treat you right. I, you know, I, I have all this love to give uh, and the old man begins to hound him more, um, which moves Donnie into talking about the questions on the quiz show playing at the TV in the bar, uh, ranting and raving before uh, another one of those um, big monologues that right, <laughs> actors right. do in this movie Yep. before he has to rush off to the bathroom and uh, vomit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I should point out to the the, I didn't realize this the first time, but in rewatching it, the old man at the bar. The character's name is Thurston Howell, fr- hmm. who was the, from the Gilligan's Island, um, <laughs> which is, just seemed like a very kind of random, yeah. I guess, homage. I mean, you know, he he does have, you know, Thurston Howell was the like the wealthy, uh, you know, socialite, whatever, you know, so I, I guess I, it, it kind of tracks with that character. But it's a funny, I guess, old TV reference that only only a select few would, would know <laughs> was being made.
1: It's fun to put those little Easter eggs in there, you know, it's fun totally. to catch well, them, too. <laughs>
0: I mean, and also the whole film, you know, he's PT Anderson has been kind of accused, at least at this point, that, you know, he's sort of biting a lot from um, Robert Altman Mm. and Henry Gibson, who plays Thurston Howell, is one of many Altman characters that we see in the films. Yeah, again, again, an Easter eggy, homagey kind of situation.
1: Mm hmm. Jim is back in his car again, excited about his date with Claudia. He's like, I'm gonna treat her right, I'm so excited for this. Uh, And as he's driving, a jaywalker going by catches his attention in a really big puff jacket, so he pops a U-turn to go investigate what's going on with that. You know, he's always on duty. The kids continue to try and get Stanley to go center stage, but Stanley uh, moves on from just not wanting to get up to answer this question, but deciding that he doesn't want to answer any questions anymore, and he's fully refusing to participate in the show. Meanwhile, uh, everything is sort of st- kind of start coming to a head at this point. We're reaching kind of the most frantic part of the movie almost. So a lot is going to happen in sequence. We do a lot more cutting around. Doc is approaching Mackie with the phone with Janet and Phil in the line. Linda is arriving home to Earl. Everyone is waiting for Stanley to get up. Uh, it's just ev- everything is sort of culminating that all these little threads we've been following. Mackie, who has sat through to the end of the interview, waits out the clock in silence before getting up aggressively and leaving, yelling at Gwen for, you know, trying to attack him like that, and very proud of himself for having waited out the clock and given her the time, but not said anything and not really talking into the things that happened in his past. Uh, and it is at that point that he is handed the phone. <laughs> right. Jimmy tries to cover for Stanley a bit to make the audience laugh, but Stanley just goes off on them and Jimmy about how he's not a toy, he's not just some cute kid, turns kind of a question around on Jimmy, who has no answers for him about how, what this use of these kids for entertainment is, it, it has the effect that it has, and how fair it is to them, and Stanley is going, uh, going off.
0: <laughs> hey, everybody gets a monologue, right, yeah. it's Stan- Stanley's <laughs> turn for monologue.
1: <laughs> Everyone gets their monologue, including <laughs> including little Stanley. Yes. Um, <laughs> Jim exits his car to investigate the puffer jacket he saw running away, and finds himself being shot at. And as this happens, he hides in some bushes and drops his gun. And I, the the young boy who rapped before picks it up and runs off, but Jim doesn't see this. Mackie, meanwhile, gets the update from Janet about the situation and who is on the other end of the phone uh, as Stanley continues to go off on being smart and his dad loses it in the green room, throws a chair across the room. uh, As you were saying, some of the more toxic masculinity based traits showing off here from Stanley's dad. (laughs) Uh, And Stanley runs off the set. Janet tries to pressure Frank to give her a decision on the phone. Like, do you want to? Do you want me to put these guys through to you? What do you want to do? Uh, as Phil notices that Linda is home from all the dogs barking at her, she enters the house and tells Phil to hang up the phone, uh, losing it on him, and eventually forcefully hanging up the phone herself. As he tries to explain that it was Earl's wish to call Jack, but she does not want—or not Jack, Frank—but Janet. Janet. Linda does not want him to. <laughs> it's hard to keep track of it. <laughs> All of these the sections names are gone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so Frank's name.
0: Frank's real name is Jack with with you know just yeah. to keep that clear. So but yeah. Right. Lots of...
1: Um Janet decides to put Frank through on the phone even though Frank has fallen silent. He has he's frozen. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, at that moment though, Linda slams the phone down, hanging up on him and Jack also drops the phone and hangs up. <laughs> it is Missed connection on both ends, despite good guy Phil's best efforts. So close. So, so close. close. Oh, it was so frustrating in the moment uh, watching that be like, oh, he was he was right there. We saw him put yeah, all yeah. this work in all of this detective work. He was doing everything he could. And at the last possible second, uh, it came to Nothing. <laughs> On set, Jimmy is taken care of and helped off the stage as the remaining kids and adults yell about who won when they're looking at the score. They're like, well, the episode didn't finish, so the adults are ahead. But that doesn't mean they won and the adults are all like, well, they locked the score in whenever the episode ended. So we won and it's a whole mess for everyone on set. Jim, meanwhile, is crying in the rain over his situation with the missing gun. Uh, He is going to be disgraced, embarrassed. It's it's a really uh, terrible thing for him to have lost it. And we kind of just see everyone else in sequence falling apart. Claudia is crying, watching the credits of her father's show. Linda lays in bed with Earl. Uh, She tells him she loves him before reaching into the pharmacy bag and pulling out the liquid morphine. She does apologize to Phil for yelling at him and hitting him. And explains that she's going to turn away and walk away. And that she wants Earl to know that everything's okay. She's okay. Um, everything's fine she loves him. Uh, she's kind of expressing this to Phil to pass the message along and Phil cries and picks up the liquid morphine seems that this may be the end for many right. um, yeah
0: and I think it was it was maybe the the scene or two before when uh, Linda came into the garage that you you had this sense that she was gonna keep the car running and yeah. kill, kill herself
1: yeah I thought that's where I was going at first because it's very smoky inside of the garage. Either right, from the right. Ex- She's kind of like lingering and, there. Yeah. And
0: yeah, and it's just like, uh-oh, like I, mm-hmm. I, I think this is going to be bad.
1: <laughs> Back on stage, Mackie once more addresses his uh, adoring audience for the section How to Fake Like You Are Nice and Caring, the second kind of faux title for this movie. Uh, totally. What, What's at the center of this lesson? Men are shit. Uh, he's like, that's what everyone, that's all the women say about us. And this sort of spirals into... Tom Cruise's big, passionate monologue for the movie, <laughs> where Mackie uh, goes on to express that he will not apologize for who he is. He also flips a table at one point. Everyone gets their monologue,
0: <laughs> right? And the and the cracks in his facade are kind of coming mm-hmm. through. Yeah, he's he's but right, yeah, he, yeah. This is his. I mean, he's he's the master of the monologue of the film. <laughs> but yeah, so even his monologue is sort of like more fraught in that, like right. he's clearly falling apart. <laughs>
1: Earl calls Phil over and he begins to tell him about Lily, the love of his life, and Mackie's mom. Uh, He tells him a little bit about how they met when they were in school uh, and how he loved her and they were married for 23 years, but that he was a fool who cheated on her. And this is his big regret, is that not not only did he uh, fail to honor that love, but he uh, left all of this pressure on their son when he should have been around to help care for her. Uh, and he's like, this is you know, one of the many stupid things I, I've done in my life. But despite it all, you know, our love was really strong. Um, and my biggest regret is letting that love go. So sort of an old man dying, reflecting on his life and his mistakes, uh, which is something of a recurring theme <laughs> in this completely, film. Completely, completely, yeah. Jimmy is brought home to his wife to sort of rest and recover. Claudia gets ready for her date, Uh, Jim and the other police... With more cocaine. More cocaine. Every (laughs) single scene she's in, uh, you can count her having a little bit of cocaine. (laughs) Jim and the other police scan the area for his gun to no avail. Uh, Meanwhile, Stanley breaks into the library where we first saw him and reads all about the other intelligent kids of history, musical prodigies, baby geniuses, anything he can get his hands on. Kind of like when he was in the elevator asking about the meteorology studio upstairs. He's got something right in front of him that interests him, and he just wants to know everything about it that he can. Donnie is gathering all of his keys. We'll see what he does with those. (laughs) Oh my. Linda is in her car in the rain. Uh, She takes all of the different medications and mixes them in an attempted suicide through overdose. Phil, this is where he continues his good guy bit and sends the relief nurse away. Uh, He decides to stick it out and he gives Earl some of the liquid morphine um, at this point. Claudia continues to do cocaine (laughs) while waiting on her date. Uh, And we see Jim also dressed for the date as everyone begins to sing along to the song uh, It's Not Going to Stop by Amy Mann. Uh, We get a little sequence where we'll visit each character in their respective locations singing a piece of this song.
0: It's a musical. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a little bit of a, an Amy Mann jukebox musical in, if you're extremely liberal with the term.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that scene divides audiences. Like, mm-hmm. some people probably find it really cloying and, and kind of ridiculous. It's another great kind of breaking of the fourth wall and this mm-hmm. kind of self-referential, like... um you know, it's also very MTV music video inspired, obviously. Um, yeah, I'm still not clear where I land on that. I mean, I, I, I yeah. you know, I, I, I'm not a huge Amy Mann fan, but I, I appreciate <laughs> the gravity of the song and, and it, the way it, the way that sequence plays out is very, you know, moving. So I so, yeah, I'm, I'm with it. I'm, I'm, I will not chastise P.T. Anderson for, for including that s- segment, as some critics have.
1: Yeah, I think I like the inclusion of the song a lot. I, I agree with you. I'm not quite sure how I feel about the actual use of it, like with everyone singing along necessarily, but I do kind of love the angle you've been bringing up of like pushing the fourth wall and like breaking the fourth wall and how this definitely plays into that. And I think from that lens, this works really well, but I can see how watching it, um, you might, an audience member might be taken aback at like, why are they all of a sudden, you know, doing a music video in the midst of this very serious film? Right. Um but I think it adds just a little bit of of style in, in a way that keeps you in at the about two hour mark of the right. movie. <laughs> we will get our next forecast title sequence, as it were. Uh, rain's going to be clearing. It's going to be breezy overnight. The stormiest of it has happened. and We're entering a bit more of a slower section. Jim finally arrives to pick up Claudia for their date uh, and Donnie gathers his keys to go uh, off and do a little errand of his own Phil meanwhile opens the door and it is Mackie who has arrived at the house despite hanging up on the phone previously and wanting nothing to do with his dad they go through all their little introductions and explanations of what's happening all the while the dogs are barking and uh, Mackie will have a lot of lines where he's like don't let those dogs get like yeah. fucking near me
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah I will drop kick those dogs if they come near
1: me. <laughs> he says he will drop kick those dogs several times
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's you know more of the humor of the movie where there's there's some funny lines mixed in, even if it's not a comedy by any sense of the word.
0: And that that male anger, mm-hmm. you know, ish, issue. Uh, you know, he clearly he has, yeah. he has some of that. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Linda is completely passed out in her car when the young boy who rapped before comes and knocks on her window. Uh, that doesn't rouse her, so he opens the unlocked passenger side door and continues to shake her, but to no avail. He eventually digs through her purse and uses her phone to make a call. This kid is like a agent of the plot in a weird way. I couldn't quite get a read on him because he would usually just show up and like he'll, he'll take the gun, but he doesn't have a purpose for it necessarily, or he provides the explanation to Jim at one point, and now he's going to attempt to save Linda's life and help her out in this moment. And he always seems to be sort of aware of everyone's little... Plots going on, uh, in sort of like a weird meta-narrator way. Uh, he almost felt like a character who was constantly breaking the fourth wall.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. He is yeah, sort of this like otherworldly presence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Jimmy home with his wife, who is nothing but supportive, even though he believes that he is a bad person and wants to apologize for her for all the times he's cheated on her. Now that he is himself a dying man. Claudia and Jim are on their date, and Claudia asks him if he ever you know, tells little lies on dates to make himself seem better, and they both promise to just tell the truth to each other and be upfront, uh, promise not to hold anything back. So these two have some sort of connection here. Again, the Claudia performance sometimes made it a little bit difficult to kind of tell exactly what that connection was, but it seems that they are having a successful date. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very very strange couple I, I will say but mm-hmm. uh, but I, yeah, obviously that's the point
1: right uh, she excuses herself to go to the bathroom Donnie pulls up at the back entrance of the store he is to work at and uses all of his keys to let himself in casually walking straight to the safe taking all the money and valuables getting anything to help himself get ahead Mackie goes into his father's room along with Phil who is there to keep the dogs away and keep you know, help uh, Earl if he needs it because Mackie won't. And he sits with his father, insulting him a bunch and recounting what it was like to be with his mother when she was sick and dying. Hope saying he hopes that he dies and it hurts. You could really see just sort of the the anger and frustration of this son towards his father for his father's admittedly bad actions uh, earlier in his life.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable character arc i mean to, to like you know because i think mm-hmm. the frank tj Mackey character is the first one we kind of see in, in, in the introduction of the characters through his, his infomercial you know and just this like shallow kind of charlatan um you know sexist jackass you know and then to like i mean he really like fully goes into like the most emotional po- po- you know possibly in the whole film like it's really like the the crescendo it's just like mm-hmm. wow you know
1: yeah, it, there's no, like, one main plot or main character in this film. It really is an ensemble piece. But there is a certain, like, weight to the uh, Jack and Earl kind of relationship that it almost feels like a main uh, character plot line in some way. So there is a little bit more, I feel, weight, like you were saying, on the, this character arc for, for Jack and the resolution that he's kind of having in this moment uh, in a way that, like, Stanley's storyline is important in part of it. But when he's in the library and he's he's having his moment and he's he's good it's like it's great but we move on pretty quickly and it doesn't feel like it's outweighing any of the other plot lines uh, in the same way donnie leaves the store locks up behind him but as he does his key breaks off in the lock he leaves it and drives away as he's driving off some emts pick up linda and the young boy is watching and waiting in a nearby car having called in and i assume the emts to pick linda up rose Meanwhile, tells Jimmy, her husband, that she's not mad, but she's not done asking her questions of him yet. Uh, She wants to know why their daughter, Claudia, doesn't talk to him, and he claims to not know, but she pushes him to say it. Claudia comes back from the bathroom and gives Jim a little kiss on the cheek before admitting that she's nervous, he's going to hate her, uh, and when he finds out all sorts of things about her. And this is where I thought she might tell him, like, I've been doing cocaine the entire time that we've known each other. (laughs) but no that's not that's not what comes up uh. that's not that important
0: really <laughs>
1: <laughs> instead she talks up how good he is and he interrupts her to say i'm not actually that great i lost my gun today i'm a laughingstock now and she's happy that he said something so vulnerable to her and promises he promises to listen to her without any judgment uh she asks him if they want to kiss and they do so this is where I started to like understand how the date was going because the first conversation while it seemed mostly positive was a little unclear at this point I'm like, okay, maybe these two in their own weird way are connecting and getting along.
0: yeah with with just like some weird cocaine energy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jimmy meanwhile admits that the th- the reason his relationship with his daughter is, on the rocks is that Claudia thinks he molested her and he always says thinks or assumes or believes because he insists that he just doesn't know if that's true this sends his wife off crying uh, saying that he deserves to die alone for all that he's done and he keeps trying to ask her what it is that he's done but she won't say uh, instead believing her daughter over this man Claudia uh, on the date that seems to be going well now is like Hey, what if I asked you to never see me again? And then sort of rushes <laughs> off before Jim can answer. Uh, something seems to have pushed her away.
0: Cocaine's a hell of a drug.
1: <laughs> that is kind of her plot line. We have to assume that there is some residual trauma and some psychological associations with like the older men that she's been dating from right. the situation with her father. But... It is at this point also very entirely fair to assume just like, man, cocaine, <laughs> <You> know, really. <laughs> right, right. Mackie is, uh, as the subtitles of this movie said, wrecked with emotion <laughs> as he asks his dad why he didn't call and begs him not to go away. So despite his complicated relationship and how much he has hated him for leaving him with his taking care of his mom, uh, he doesn't want him to actually die at this point. Linda's ambulance passes right by Donnie as he's driving away from the store, causing him to pause and question what he's doing. So Donnie pops a U-turn to head on back and return the money. Claudia uh, does some more cocaine while in a cab ride home, <laughs> also passing her mother, who is driving and crying in her own right. Everyone's getting in their cars now.
0: <laughs> it's, it's reaching that frenzied moment. Something, what, what, what's going to happen next? What could possibly happen next?
1: <laughs> Uh, Jimmy gets up and makes his way to a drawer containing a gun, Donnie tries to re-enter the shop but his broken key is still in the lock and he can't fish it out and in the process of trying to climb up the drain pipe and break into the shop another way, Jim on his drive home spots this happening he's like, ah, never off duty and turns around to intervene when two frogs hit his windshield seemingly falling from the sky. He stops and hundreds more start to fall in just this deluge of frogs from the sky. And we see every single character also encounter this new weather phenomenon as uh, Claudia. And I, I really love the way that the shot is framed because she's doing more cocaine <laughs> <laughs> in front of the window and the curtains are closed and you just see the silhouettes of frogs falling from the sky behind her um, until she catches their reflection in the TV. Earl has a uh, similar frog-based precipitation. It makes the dogs go wild. They're just raining en masse all over the city. They send Rose crashing into some parked cars as she's freaking out. Um, They plummet down and send Linda's ambulance crashing, rolling over itself, landing feet from the emergency uh, surgery entrance. (laughs) An incredibly lucky coincidence for (laughs) her. (laughs) and And I assume all the EMTs in the car, because we do see them getting thrown around quite a bit. Right. Jimmy, gun to his head, is knocked out by a frog that falls through his kitchen light. I I believe the the gun discharges, but it doesn't hit him, uh, saved by a coincidental frog from the sky. And uh, Jim pulls into the lot uh, where the store is as Donnie is knocked off of the drain pipe by one of the frogs and helps him to shelter in the nearby gas station.
0: Knocking Donnie's front teeth out. So So the, the, like braces, oral surgery arc, you know, has a (laughs) another moment.
1: Yes, he might need that uh, dental surgery after all. Yes. Uh, Rose also arrives at her daughter's and she and Claudia huddle together as these frogs fall and Stanley in the library watches all the frogs falling, uh, saying aloud that this is something that happens and as he watches he has sort of this slight smile and the frogs seem to sort of slow down for a second. Earl uh, as these frogs are falling looks Somewhat alert, looks at his son and after a moment's gasping, uh finally passes away. Whew. Whew, frogs. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we get to the next the title uh card of the movie, So Now Then, and we'll sort of see the resolution of many of these accounts. But I won't before we get too far into it, I do want to ask, like, how do you interpret the the frogs? I know a lot of people have said it's a reference to Exodus, I think it's eight two, uh the frogs will fall from the sky.
0: Yeah. Um, And supposedly like Paul Thomas Anderson didn't really know that (laughs) reference uh, allegedly, Um, you know, I like I said before, there's a there's references to Charles Fort, who Mm -hmm. was like a philosopher writer um, who inspired countless science fiction authors um, and was kind of a specialist in paranormal phenomenon and and, um, strange occurrences. Supposedly, he he invented the word teleportation. Huh. I so I there are several like kind of literary motifs or, or points that that, in, that that strike me about this film and and I happened to this maybe a few years before this film came out. I was reading a book called Disneyland of the Gods hmm. uh, by an author named John Keel, I, and I and I it's a short little book, and I kind of loved it. And I I don't know what happened to it. I mean, it's 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 gone from my collection, and it seems to be out of print, but. um <laughs> But the, the whole book is is kind of about strange phenomenon and including the I think the opening chapter, it opens with uh, a man who was killed by a falling toilet. And it was and like it was determined that it, would, it didn't fall off of any aircraft. It was like this random occurrence. And then it goes on and talks about Charles Ford. So, you know, I clearly read that as this Fordian reference you know these like mm-hmm. these strange you know and and to, to weave in the the narrator at the beginning you know these strange things just happen you know like it's who knows like um but also in in the film itself it seems like a a great kind of catharsis like you know because you're kind of all, the entire time like you're you're emotionally battered by all this like darkness and uh, the, just the uncomfortable you know anger and hostility and you know like everything's ha- feel, going wrong And to kind of have this moment of like bursting, like frogs just bursting out of the sky, it's kind of it it kind of feels like a relief, like wow, like okay like that's some weird shit, but now I'm like not as freaked out, oddly enough.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that this was a very important moment of catharsis for not only the characters in the movie who are all suddenly shocked out of whatever deep emotional pit they were in by like, oh my god, there are frogs falling from the sky but for the audience as well like we've been in that pit with them and now it's not only like a reminder that we're watching a story in a movie but also a moment to sort of like step back break the fourth wall a little bit (laughs) and uh just take a moment to breathe before we get into sort of the resolution of all of these different storylines
0: right yeah and the you know the weather references you know like Mm -hmm. there's that great scene as you said like where it's you know i think it's i guess it's like the third act of the film really where it's like the rain will be clearing up and like the the shot is like the rain literally like the title comes on and then the rain like magically just like like it's (laughs) totally dry you know like it's very clear movie magic you know so yeah
1: awesome well we'll move on to the kind of final section of the movie here uh so now then the narrator from the beginning returns and sort of Reminds us of some of the accounts that we heard at the very beginning of those that sort of um, archival footage of strange happenings. Phil lets in the undertakers who take Earl's body away, as well as the dog who licked up the morphine. They put a sheet over Earl and then they put a <laughs> sheet over the dog. Just another great little comedic moment for the film, Rage. even in sort of a dark humor kind of way. Totally. The narration continues over most of this, with the narrator explaining that strange things happen all the time. Phil gives the phone to Jack as the hospital is calling about Linda, as Jack kind of talks to them about, like, oh, is she okay? Phil is in the foreground, um, folding up the sheets and crying. He's been through the emotional wringer over the last 24 hours, uh, and he's finally getting a chance to let loose and not be the good supportive guy for a moment. Jack goes to the hospital, where Linda is alive and as well as she could be, she's going to pull through it seems. Stanley walks over to his dad who's asleep in bed and demands that he be nicer to him but his dad just tells him to go to bed twice so we'll see if that relationship is going to become any more equal over the rest of their lives. Donnie admits to Jim that he'd done a stupid thing trying to get these braces, but that he just has all this love to give and nowhere to put it. And that really resonates with Jim, who earlier in the film, had kind of expressed that he has all this love. Yeah. And as they're having this little moment of connection, Jim's gun also falls from the sky oh, right, <laughs> and yeah. lands amongst all the frogs. Jim helps Donnie re enter the store and return the cash while Jim kind of talks in this voiceover about how his job works and it's not always about arresting people. Sometimes you have to help them or forgive them and take everything as it lays to do your best work and be good and do this job. He gives Donny his card and tells him to call him for help with his now necessary dental surgery, <laughs> kind of putting a little pin in that uh, open loop. We go finally to Claudia, who is tucked in by her mom. Uh, and I, I thought this was a really interesting way to shoot this. We stay on Claudia in kind of a medium shot as her mom tucks her in and leaves. And then Jim comes in and presumably talks and stits by her, but we don't really see anything but just the edge of, of his shirt or his pants. Uh, and he expresses that he doesn't want to let her go, that he believes she is a good person, uh, and he, he still wants to to be with her. And for the first time in the movie, we see her like really smile softly and non twitchily and uh, end there, go to credits. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that is Magnolia <laughs> in its oh my. entirety. <laughs>
0: But yeah, what, wow, uh, what a, a good summary of a movie that uh, leaves so much to be interpreted. <laughs> and, and particularly the the way that this ending kind of winds mm-hmm. down in this very, um, you know, unresolved way, like all the characters kind of emerge. you know. And, and I guess it's also, as you may or may not have mentioned, but this is a 24 hour period. You know, we kind of mm-hmm. start like an, on the morning of one day. and So all of this hap- transpires over one day. So we've sort of, we're into the next day and the smoke is, the, the frogs are gone. and you know, we're, we're, The like, frogs are like,
1: very much not gone. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's, a,
0: that's a major cleanup. But like where things go from here is like, who knows, you know?
1: Yeah. I think that it, it ends on a surprisingly positive note, but it is very ambiguous as to, you know, how these characters are going to end. I The romance between Jim and Claudia is sort of the most net, positive relationship that we see in the movie so i understand like ending on that is sort of ending on a high note as much as magnolia can end on a high note for the the topics that it covers i thought it was a really interesting choice to to end on that just static shot of claudia but i think there are i think it's interesting how much of certain plot lines got resolved versus how many of other ones sort of stayed uh more ambiguous because stanley and his father obviously who knows how that's going to continue and develop, right? Um, right? But Donnie, in a different way, sort of feels like he has had a pin put in it. You know, he's going to get his he's going to get his dental surgery. He's going to figure <laughs> out what to do next. Um, hey. And Earl obviously passes away, so his his story is done. But what's his son going to do, and how is Jack and Linda's relationship going to change? I think Jimmy might be the one with, I in my opinion, the most ambiguous ending, in that we don't really see him after the frogs fall from the sky but in another way you know he's no longer important to his daughter and his wife's story so i understand like ma- we're moving past him he's he's going to pass away yeah and right now right. It's about. he's kind of already written
0: out <laughs> in the next apartment yeah. uh, anyway.
1: <laughs> he's not appearing in the unofficial sequel that we've picked exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh man so i'm curious because watching this uh i'm in my mid 20s and so in terms of characters to directly relate to I had kind of kind of Claudia kind of some of the younger characters not not Stanley but we're moving up a little bit (laughs) Uh, but it's definitely watching this I got the feeling that if I rewatched it in 20 years or so I might look at it differently based on how my life had turned out and my relationships with people had changed either as a parent or um, just in general with how life continues on as we see all these different characters and especially like the relationship between father and son throughout and i'm curious having now watched it a second time yourself did the way that you felt about this movie change on that second viewing
0: yeah that's a good question because i honestly you know like i said when i when i first watched it i'm in my 20s and you you know it it, it, i think it was just a different cinematic moment too Mm -hmm. like I, i think that um you know films like this were you no know, not being made more regularly but it was more common that a kind of indie you know big a big you know uh, slash indie Hollywood film you know could could tackle like these bigger issues you know so I think I was just a little more tuned into that world mm-hmm. in fact I, I you know I will say that I, and I'm, I, ca- I have to get my dates Straight, but I think uh, American Beauty came out in the same year, and they were both kind of both films were being discussed as like you know best picture of the year, but you mm-hmm. know, and, and American Beauty seemed to siphon all of the energy away. In my view, at least, it, away from Magnolia. Like I felt like Magnolia was maybe just too obtuse for for some folks. So everyone was really obsessed with American Beauty. So when I and I think I saw American Beauty r- around the same time, and I was like, this is a terrible. I, like, I immediately found all the flaws within American Beauty, mm-hmm. and was able to appreciate magnolia for it's much more kind of open-ended and complex you know way it deals with yeah like all these different characters and their different issues i mean i I don't think it i don't think i don't think i change you know i don't think as a 40 year old i'm almost 50 but you know as as an older person you know seeing this film it does it hasn't changed necessarily for me but Mm -hmm. i definitely like i said i think that that masculinity thing is really crucial that maybe didn't resonate so much back in the past, like I think it was more of just like, a wow, what a crazy film, like and what a kind of gut wrenching experience. But now I just feel like, oh, uh, yeah, like I, I see all of the <laughs> all of these like middle aged man like issues sort of creeping in like more specifically.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely a sign of the time that the way that you can approach a movie with these kind of themes or these characters can just change so much based on the cultural context. I was pleasantly surprised by how seamless Magnolia felt. Often I I get worried with similar dramas, you know, it's going to have a lot to say, maybe that's going to weigh it down. And at the end, I'm going to be left feeling like, well, what did I just watch? What am I supposed to take away from this? And I feel like while this is presenting certainly a lot of uh, interconnected stories, it always felt like the appropriate moment when we jumped to a new character. And by the end of the film, I didn't feel like I had spent three hours in someone's drama so much as I felt like I had seen a complete story, even if it had all these threads hanging off at the end. Do I know exactly how to interpret it? No, that's that's sort of the fun of a more open-ended story, right? But I, I think it's definitely worth the viewing experience, even as that experience changes.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you almost kind of you know you you obviously you enter in on just like a one morning, like you're mm-hmm. in this, these characters' lives, so it's very just like you jump right in, um, and it feels. Yeah, like a little kind of clumsy like oh we're just bouncing around here to there and like you know what's happening but that you i think and g- given that it's a three-hour film yeah, you know, like by <laughs> the midway point or close to toward you know to the midway point yeah you're you're completely hooked because you're constantly like seeing these intersections and these and, and the way the editing really like the like like a line of dialogue will bleed into the next scene or mm-hmm. a piece of music or, or like you were saying with the titles for um the Frank Mackey's thing you know like it all like there's this really wonderful fluidity of the editing um yeah that yeah really really <laughs> wonderful
1: really great well thank you so much for joining me I get kind of closing thoughts question on this movie uh, I usually like to ask would you recommend our guests watch this movie and is there a certain situation they should watch it in if so who do you think might be a good audience for this would should should our audience watch this movie should they watch Magnolia <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I know, I know that like you guys, and I, I know you talk a lot about like genre films. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like that, and, and you know, and, and I'm as a viewer, I, I, don't, I mean, I, like, I'm not, I'm kind of very squeamish with horror films. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of horror, but for me, like, this, this is my horror. I, I really mm. love films that dig deep into these kind of psychological, like, emotional crises, and and, and mm-hmm. um. And, and it's it, it's horrifying i mean like i said i'm, I'm uncomfortable watching these films and i'm yeah. on the edge of my seat and I, and I and i suspect that not everyone like some i feel like some people would see this and be just oh this is just like pseudo intellectual bullshit or whatever like i, I you know i want to i want to th- see things explode or blood splatter <laughs> you know like i'm not but but for me that yeah like that this is the real like kind of horror of like you know our <laughs> our own inner turmoil as as, as horror yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I, I think that uh, I don't know what the ideal circumstances for, for viewing this is. I mean, you know, have have a have a drink. Avoid any access to cocaine. We, like, we know that. Yes. Um, but maybe have a drink or two handy.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe a diet coke. You can match Donnie, Although that didn't turn out great for him, so maybe not. <laughs> Uh, No, I agree with you. I think this is, it's disquieting in the same way that like watching a horror movie could be, uh, depending on what feeling you want. You're not gonna be comfortable necessarily watching Magnolia, but I do think it's still worth watching for kind of similar reasons. Maybe not a great movie night with friends, but definitely if you have an evening to yourself, have a drink, (laughs) yeah, yeah, (laughs) sit down and kind of let yourself get into this more emotional state.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I was also really, Just curious to, to watch it. you know, I feel like well, so I, I, I also there's another book that I really love called mm-hmm. Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, mm. um, which you may or may not know. It's like very large, um, it's like I don't know 800, 900 pages long, and I mm-hmm. read it when it first came out. and it is this sprawling story with multiple characters and interweaving stories, et cetera. And I loved it, and it's it's there's a whole kind of you know genre of fiction, metafiction, like you know arth- authors like John Barth and Thomas Pynchon, and I really felt like when I when I saw this film in my twenties that P.T. Anderson clearly like was pulling from that world, that that mm. genre of these like these no- these novels, and, and but more recently there was this kind of backlash against like the dude culture of 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 you know getting into. David Foster Wallace <laughs> and Infinite Jest, you know. So I, I, I also kind of wanted to watch the film from that angle, of like, mm-hmm. oh, like, is that a similar backlash against, like, you know, should, should I be, should I be worried about being a, a <laughs> like, a, a supporter of this film? Like, or people are like, oh, yeah, you're such a dude who likes those kind of, th- you know, smarty pants, you know, whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I, anyway, I, I stand by my ground. I, I, I will yeah. stand by this film. Like, it's, it's a good film. I will still stand by Infinite Jest. <laughs> it's a good novel.
1: I would agree. I, th- I think this film is safe from the kind of dude culture label in that not only is it it you know it, i i talk about movies for a living so <laughs> often i worry that like oh my god am i watching all this like oscar bait because it's oscar bait but i think that like this and similar films escape that and magnolia in particular because it's when you actually watch it not only is it engaging and well made and a drama but the way that it explores is particularly its male characters and the expression of masculinity which maybe not at the time would have been called toxic masculinity and never like justifying that kind of um two in its own mind storytelling uh saves this from maybe falling into the pit of the i read uh catch catcher in the rye in high school and now it's my whole personality kind of movement right, right. <laughs> so i think i think you're in the clear <laughs> good very good yes <laughs> But Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a delight. If our audience wanted to hear more from you, where could they find you?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, so Lightbox Film Center uh, is uh, here in Philadelphia. It's part of the University of the Arts. And uh, we do screenings just about every week, uh, mostly repertory films um, and the kind of independent stuff. And. It's worth checking out lightboxfilmcenter.org. We are now doing some film restoration projects as well. So um, there's lots happening on that front that will be coming out later this year. But um, check it out.
1: Awesome. Well, all of that will be linked in the show notes below. Uh, Thank you again for joining me. Usually I take these podcasts out by making some sort of obtuse reference to the movie and saying I have to go do something, but no frogs have fallen from the sky yet, so I think I'm in the clear this episode.
0: Perfect, perfect.
1: Uh, And I'll catch all of our listeners next time. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on May 8th with another thrilling installment, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. You can get even more film-related conversation from our Discord linked in the show notes below, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platforms, and if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron for even more exclusive benefits. I'd like to take a moment to thank the patrons who joined us last month. It's because of you guys and all of the wonderful folks over there supporting the show that we're able to keep the lights on and keep frequent interrupter Ziggy, fed. Uh, So without further ado, thank you to Daniel McDonald, Gabby, Sierra, Leon Jacek, Kenna, and Conkley.